Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We're so very happy that this event is happening here. Um, the deeper... The deeper, the deeper water of the uglier fish. Um, if you notice the, the goldfish and the licorice fish um, on the table, um, uh, now you know why. You know, just now you know why. And those goldfish was were just addictive. It's one of those you know things that just I can't get get enough of. Um, Katya's uh, short stories have appeared in various literary magazines. She's a screenwriter and translator, born in Moscow. Moscow. The, uh, she currently lives in Los Angeles. Uh, she'll read for about um, 11 minutes, and then she'll be <laughs> 11, 15, maybe 11 minutes and 30 seconds, maybe that too. And she will be uh, joined by um, one of our favorite people. We're always happy to have her in the store. Michelle Hunt even has an MFA from Iowa Writers Workshop. Uh, she has received a General Electric uh, Younger Writers Award and a Whiting Writers Award. Her two previous novels are Round Rock and James Land. She lives with her husband here in Altadena, California, and we have her here in, um, in Las Vilas. So uh, Michelle will be joining us later. Right now, please welcome Katya. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, okay, so I'm going to read from not the very beginning, but sort of towards the beginning of the deeper the water, the uglier the fish. Um, I guess all you really need to know is um, Edith or Edie and May, they're sisters, and their mother is um, in a mental hospital after she uh, attempted suicide. And they uh, had to leave their home in New Orleans and move to New York to live with their dad who's, um, he's a famous writer, and their mom was his muse. So I think that's kind of all the setup you need. Oh, also, the novel is told, like, from multiple perspectives, so I'm going to read a few different sections. Okay. A letter from Marianne McLean, that's their mother, to Edith and May, 1997. My dear daughters, please ignore my previous letter, a familiar itch behind the eyeballs, words not my own. Can you even read this? It's the medicine that makes my hands shake. Please do not be alarmed, tremors and earthquakes in my hands and feet and face. They'll keep deforming me until there's nothing left to deform. Every morning they put me in an ice bath up to my neck. I have never been so cold. A nurse, sadistic bitch, sits and watches my teeth chatter. I've developed a nasty cough, but they say some of the fog has lifted. I am writing you girls a letter after all, my two lovelies, my ribbit and rabbit. I forgive you and try not to think about you. I'm ashamed, of course. I want to keep you, even thoughts of you, away from this place. The suffering is in the walls and the floor under the tables. It's mixed into the paint. It smells like shit and fear. It gets into your nostrils, and then it's too late because it's in you. My neighbor can't stop crying. Can't or won't. 
I have only recently begun to distinguish between awake and asleep. I've started writing again. Words repeat in my head. The only way to flush them out is to write them down. Poems. Your father is no saint, but he is a lot of things. I love you. It's a bell in the fog, the only thing that exists. Be brave, mom. Edith, 1997. What have they done to her in there? What did I let them do? The paramedics and the police, I should have lied, but I was so stunned. I told them what happened, and then they twisted it. The man with the gun holsters pouring me an orange soda into a styrofoam cup, he was younger than the detectives on television shows, practically my age, wispy mustache. He asked me question after question, and stupidly, I told him everything, and he rubbed my shoulders and wiped the orange from my mouth with a napkin. Why hadn't I kept quiet? I put her in there, she thinks so too. Why else would she need to forgive me? And now they're torturing her because of what I said. Between the ice baths and the pills they're giving her, it's a miracle she can write at all. Her handwriting was always so small, neat, round. She would press down hard enough that it was almost an engraving. You could run your fingers over the paper and feel the words. Here though, her handwriting looks like a ghost sneezed. There's nothing in the way it looks that is hers. It could have been written by someone else, her sobbing neighbor, some slob in a turban. It makes me feel better to think it was somebody else's hand shaking over the paper, that mom was just dictating. I read the letter again, a third time, a fourth time. I start to hear the words and not see them. My two lovelies, my ribbit and rabbit. That sounds like her. The sound of her voice in my head calms me, bell in the fog, even though the things she is saying, tremors deforming me, are not very calming. I get to the beginning of the letter again and stop. Please ignore my previous letter. Where's the other letter? I ask Dennis. I never saw it. He must have hidden it from us. Dennis doesn't answer me. He's busy reading over our shoulders. He's squinting because he's too vain to get glasses. Has he gotten to the part about him yet? No saint. If he has, he gives no indication of it. I don't know what she means when she says he's a lot of things. I assume it's bad. What did you do with the other letter? I ask him again. What letter, he says, looking down at me with his wet lamb eyes. Is he lying? Where did he put it? She said she sent another letter. You can't hide things like that from us. I feel the blood rushing into my face. It's not right. I'm not hiding anything. You're with me all the time. You see me get the mail. This is true, but it's not like we pay attention to it. He could easily have hidden it in a magazine, read it later in his room. She probably never even wrote it, May says slowly. She probably just thought she did or dreamed she did and got confused. That's May. She'll take any opportunity to make mom look foolish. It's disgusting. Or maybe the doctors held on to it, Dennis says. They monitor her correspondence. I imagine a doctor unfolding and reading my mother's letter and then folding it back and putting it in a manila folder in her file. Evidence against her, words she said to us in anger that will now be used to keep her locked up. I think you're lying. The chair falls backwards as I stand, bangs against the tile in the kitchen floor. May puts her hand on mine, but I shake it off. That little know-it-all traitor. She probably knew about the letter all along. Dennis must have showed it to her, and she told him it would upset me too much to see it. Well, I'll find it. Edie, what are you doing? Please don't touch my desk. Edith. Dennis fo follows me into his room. He crouches, gathering the papers I threw on the floor. 
Enough, he says, as I try to swipe at a stack of papers on his bedside table. I open the book he's been reading and shake it out. A bookmark flutters to the ground, nothing else. Edith, that's enough. He holds me by the back of my shirt, but I leap forward like I'm on a leash. I'm looking at the windowsill. That's where he probably sat reading it, smoking, reading, crying. Why is there so much ash in the ashtray, I say. He burned it, lit the tip with a match, and watched the words melt. Edith, stop. May's voice is quiet. She's embarrassed. I look at her face. No, she's not embarrassed. She's scared of me. I place the ashtray back on the windowsill, careful not to spill any of it. And this last section is from May. I was the one who threw out the first letter from Mom. I could hear the whistle of it hurtling towards us, so I intercepted it. This was difficult since I was almost never alone, but desperation makes you crafty. The envelope felt heavy and hot to the touch, and it contained ten illegible pages, each word a barbed hook. I skimmed it, careful not to let any of the words catch in me, before I tore it up and flushed it down the toilet. I didn't want Edie getting any more agitated about Mom than she already was. I wouldn't say I wanted Mom dead. I'm not a monster, but I wanted her vacuum-sealed somewhere where she couldn't get to us. In New York, I was happy, happy and safe from her, I thought. I failed to intercept the second letter. It arrived, narcissistic, well-wrought, barely legible, and full of those elliptical riddles that get under your skin and tug. Edie became obsessed, analyzing it to death. What did it signify that nothing was capitalized? Mom's low sense of self-worth, her aversion to order, her artistic temperament? Was she a frustrated, creative person with no outlet for her artistic energies? Was this the true source of her unhappiness? Would poetry prove to be her salvation? I let Edie talk and talk about it. I didn't contradict her, even though I knew that none of what she was saying was true or relevant. She did not understand Mom at all. The third letter came a few days after that. Edie was already wound up, and she poured over the new one like a cryptologist. It wasn't really a letter. There was no dear or love. It was a poem. How coy of mom, how opaque to communicate with us in this way, to demand that we guess what it was she was trying to say like she was Sylvia fucking Plath. What do you think it means? What do you think it means, Edie kept saying, standing too close and watching me as I read it. The poem was gibberish, the unpunctuated words together, unpleasant sounds, repeated, oppressive. But reading it filled my mouth with a fetid taste of lake water. It made me think of those night trips when mom would disappear into Lake Pontchartrain and I would nervously pace the shore, waiting for her head to break the surface. I was dry and on land getting devoured by mosquitoes, but I could only feel the algae squishing under my feet, the black water burning in my nose. Once, Mom emerged from the water with an enormous catfish latched onto her arm. On the drive home, the fish flapped and struggled in the back seat while Mom laughed so hard I had to steer. She was laughing, but what does that mean? It wasn't an expression of joy. It was just a sound, like something in her was trying to get out. What, Edie said, what? She sensed that I had been able to decode it in some way. It was clear to me the poem was a suicide note. It might as well have been an acrostic that spelled out goodbye, forever. How selfish, how grotesque. Why pull us into all that again? We were children, and the text, the handwriting, jerky and weak. It forced me to imagine her in the act of writing, which I also resented. I did not want to imagine her at all, because if I allowed her in, I felt like I would lose myself again. 
It was better to take this rare opportunity that forced her off of me and leave it that way. I never told Edie what the poem really meant. I think I made up an interpretation involving mythology and even tried to convince myself of it. But I couldn't get the images out of my head of mom floating face down in a lake, in a bathtub, in the neighbor's pool. I remember hugging the cat at night and burying my face in his fur, letting his purring replace the static that her words had left in my head. Thanks. Well, I'm suitably devastated. I don't know about anybody else. Um, so I guess I want to just go start at the very beginning and, and hear a little bit about the beginning of this book and where, where it began, and you've written short stories, you've written screenplays, you've translated things. Um, maybe talk a little bit about what you did and when you got the idea for this book, and how did you know it was a novel, or did you know it was a novel, or a short story, or a screenplay? Um, so when I was in my 20s, like my early 20s, I had gotten this job writing a nonfiction book, um, and I had done all this research, and I wrote this book, and I mean, I don't think it was great, but it never came out, and so out of the ashes of that research that I'd done, this book sort of emerged, and the nonfiction book was about um, Southerners and the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, so that's sort of the backstory for this book, but also it's um, the form of this book, like, I think usually when I'm writing, I start with a form, and then the story comes after that. And so I'd been reading all these oral histories, um, especially there's this oral history, Edie, that I really loved. And um, I wanted to, I didn't want to write something that was like an imitation of an oral history exactly, and it's not quite that. I mean, one of the storylines is in the present, and the rest are in the past. But just that general kind of shape of different people telling um, their stories and everybody's sort of the hero of their own story and sort of oblivious to the effect of their actions on everybody around them, um, that form was really interesting. So I think I knew sort of that I wanted to do something with that form in a novel. And construct a whole narrative out of it. So how did you do it? Did I sort of imagine that you had all of these different big pieces of paper or index cards with different people in that you know, you would arrange them, or did it all come um, uh, in sort of a narrative order? Yeah, I wrote it in order. I, I feel like, why did I do that that way? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it would have been maybe, um, it would have been a different book, I think, if I wrote all of the narratives in their own order and wasn't just switching voices all the time. Um, but the, the so book is sort of structured in a very, I'm not somebody who's um, naturally very organized or plot oriented, so I feel like it was just this conscious decision. The plot was a very conscious decision. It didn't really happen organically. Um, so I don't, I mean, I don't think, I don't remember if I used note cards specifically, but I just was always constantly outlining and re-outlining and re-outlining because there's a lot of storylines that kind of come together and, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a, I'm not someone who can keep that kind of stuff in my head very easily. So did you always know which one you were going to write next or you had to stop and do outlining or? 
I mean, I was just outlining constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the outline evolved a lot. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it would just kind of lead, one, would, one story would sort of lead to the next. One person's account would sort of lead mm-hmm. to the next. I'd be curious about like some tangential character in one person's story and they would sort of get their own section and then, because um, the story is told from many different voices. It's not just the, the two sisters. So did you ever do a dry run like in a short story with different voices or was this your first? So a lot of my short stories are like epistolary, epistolary or mm-hmm. use some sort of um, multi-voice type well, of I love device. that this also contains letters and poems and even an author interview. Yeah. Which, which I sort of love, which will actually um, leads me to a question that, you know, like this is your, your first outing on a book tour and I feel like I have to warn you that a question you're going to get every single time is, how autobiographical is this book? And so I want to know how you plan to navigate that question. Um, I mean, it's, it's not autobiographical at all, so in a way it makes it kind of easier, but I feel like the emotions and like the emotional truth of it is autobiographical, like the feelings that the characters have are autobiographical, but like the events leading to those feelings are not anything that I've experienced and I mean some are like loosely based on historical figures but for the most part it's all just kind of made up. And your mother's read this book? My mother has read this book. (laughs) My mother is um, like usually very critical but she likes the book. Yeah I don't know. (laughs) She likes the book and I don't know what that means like if she's does see herself in the character of the mother. or that she doesn't. Or if she doesn't. I don't know. I mean, it's not, um, that's not my mother, but that's not my mother for anybody tweeting. <laughs> but, but yeah. Well, one of the things. But I think like daughters, I mean, I, I think it's, I don't want to say it's universal, but I think like mother-daughter relationships have like issues with boundaries. I think that's Well, and I think that's, common. I was just going to say yeah. that the, the attachment that May in particular feels towards her mother um, is really something that most daughters would recognize, or or that e- actually sort of Edie rather May yeah. is attached to her father more, but um, and she has more practical concerns about the mother. But Edie is the one whose mother's emotions and mother. Well, she's the one who found her mother um, when her mother attempted suicide, and but she feels attached to her, like you know, with just this live wire, and indeed. Part of the book is about her attempts to rescue her and reclaim her. I mean, the book is really, to me, about daughters really hungry for parenting that they're not getting. No comments? (laughs) No comments, yes. And sort of how how far they'll go to try and get what they need so deeply, which is so moving. so let's talk about the title a little bit because I instinctively, from reading the book, know why you chose it, but I couldn't find any reference to it in the book. Um, but the book does seem to kind of take place underwater or at least in some sort of viscous liquid or on the, if they ever make a movie of this, they're really going to have to Vaseline the lens. <laughs> um, and... You know, you do write from so deep in the psyches of these characters, 
Um, and you do get to some kind of ugly things swimming around there. So I think it's a marvelous title. Um, and it led me, but I thought, oh, maybe it came from a poem, so naturally I Googled it. But what I got to see were like some really, really <laughs> ugly fish. You have to, you have to Google it. The anglefish, the goblin shark, the, um, the um, what is it called, the phantom shark? Or there's, um, I even made a note of it here, I have to find it. You gotta look these things up, because they are really something. Um, the viper fish, the ghost shark, it literally has dead eyes. It's really terrifying looking. My, um, my grandparents are marine biologists. Um, I mean, I don't know if that was part, part of it, but when, when I told my grandmother the title, she was like, that's a terrible title. <laughs> um, I mean, I think like anything I said, would have, that would have probably been the response, but like she, she was saying that, um, that the fish are adaptable and that they're not ugly, they just have adapted to their environment of... They're pretty ugly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It was like an aphorism that I came up with sort of separately, but it applied and then I was like, what am I going to name this book? And then I was like, did you have a list <laughs> of names or Yeah, so at some point there is um a push to change the name and um I don't think any of the other options were felt really right, so it reverted to and how far one. along were you in the book when you gave it the title? I think like the end. Yeah. yeah. I think I think somewhere near the end, yeah. Um so you know, I had a shrink once who said that every nuclear family is a culture unto itself. And so the culture of this family to me um, was so, oh, it's so interesting because they're so broken up, they're divided, the mother's in a mental institution getting well, the two daughters are with a father that, that they don't know who's incredibly narcissistic and can't quite be, be reached. Um, I guess, how did, I just want you to talk about the family a little bit and how you saw it and what you wanted to do with this family. Yeah, well, um, I think growing up, I always wanted a sister. I have a brother, but he's 14 years younger than me. So I don't know, yeah, I don't have a sister. Any, I mean, so yeah, nothing is autobiographical, but I think the artist, I mean, I, I feel like all artists are a little bit like terrible vampires, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I am a little bit that way. So I think as horrible as Dennis is, I do sort of sympathize with him too. Um, he pretty much cannibalizes his family and his marriage and for his art. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I, <laughs> but, but like I understand that impulse. I mean, yeah. I, I see that I understand that impulse, um, even if I, you know, do it more indirectly or whatever. It's our material. It's what we have to work yeah. with as writers, yeah. Um, but the family dynamic, I had been, so I guess when I was starting off, I was, I was reading this biography of, um, of Sylvia Plath by um, Janet Malcolm, and it was like very not sympathetic 
to Sylvia Plath and very um, pro Ted Hughes and stuff, but just about their dynamic and stuff, it was interesting. So I think that was maybe like an early seed that- You gave Marianne the bite. And you know, when <laughs> Sylvia Plath meets Ted Hughes, she's so attracted to him, she bites his face and he rips off her earrings. So you gave Marianne the bite, she bites Dennis. Yeah, yeah, on the ear, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that was like an early seed. Mm -hmm. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't know, like in terms of the family dynamic, it's pretty, it's, it's, I'm glad that that wasn't the family I grew up in, I guess. Well, now, I don't know, it's pretty bad. Um, Dennis's whole relationship with Marianne initially is, I mean, this powerful attraction. He's at the, he's in the civil rights movement. He's gone down with the Freedom Riders. And um, her father sort of rescues and bails him out of jail. And I think that's where he meets her. Is that where he meets her at the home? Yeah, so yeah. he was friends with her father and he's known her since she was a child. Um, but they didn't get together until she was 17. 17, so yeah. Still right. a child. And but yeah. And he calls her his muse. So let's talk a little bit about muses. Do you believe in muses? Do you have a muse? Or what function do you think muses have? Um, I think I believe in like the Greek sort of like the muse in the sense of something being handed to you that's not, you know, I feel like when I was writing this book, so much of it came out of nowhere to me. Like you, I would just go into the sort of trance type of state and just be producing stuff. Um, so I guess that's sort of, I believe in that sense, like a muse, uh, something higher from above giving me material. But I don't know that I believe in like, um, like a muse as a person that, I, that just inspires, I don't know. Yeah, well, how did, how did he use her as a muse? Just, he wrote about her? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where she, so he wrote about her, and it was autobiographical. She had to be in the room, she sort of somehow fed him, it was a kind of almost erotic connection or something. Yeah, I think it was like a, a erotic obsession connection, yeah. I think she felt like he used her. Um, well, not a great basis for marriage and family. Using, using people's somebody. erotic energy for your yeah, work. Or, yeah, you know, sort of. <laughs> well, this idea, yeah. So I wonder if, if the idea of a female muse, I mean, I don't know any women that have had like a male muse that they've gotten a book out of. I do. You do, really? Well, that's interesting. But I feel like it's usually kind of negative. Oh, yeah, there's that. Like a negative muse, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Well, there's writing that's revenge or... Exploratory yeah. or yeah. something like that. So well, that's interesting. Now, does anybody have any questions for her? I've asked many. I have more if you don't. I have a child. Um. The question is, how does she juggle having a child with her, a very young child with her writing day? She's four. I, I started the book before she was born and finished it um, after she was born. So I thought I would need to finish it before, but then when I was pregnant, I was just like throwing up the entire time and really <laughs> dumb and couldn't do anything. So I don't know, but it wasn't really, it, it was fine. I don't know, it's been fine. I, um, I think it made the 
book stronger. I mean, obviously I have less time. Um, but I feel like the whole mother-daughter themes in the book like have a new dimension now that I have a daughter and I'm like the mother, <laughs> the mother damaging her. It's um, <laughs> So I don't know. Yeah, I feel like it, it, um, it did that. I got a grant when I was when she was a baby so that so I was able to like pay for childcare and stuff because I mean yeah just like practically you have a lot less time to do anything and a lot less emotional bandwidth or whatever and it's hard when you're writing and you're like really in it to then go from that to like being present with your child and and you can't really not be present I mean I guess you can but you know I, I would feel bad being not present but it's hard to switch back and forth. She probably wouldn't let you be not present. Adrienne Rich said <laughs> that she, when she had a child, every time her attention wavered, you know, every time the child would be playing independently, it'd be really good, and she'd start moving over to her desk, <laughs> the child would just come right over with her. You know? Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky because David Weinberg is my husband, and he does a lot of child care, too. So, yeah. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a question? You. Sure. Yeah. Um, do you think it changed you as a writer to write a novel and finish it and publish it? Like, how do you think it? I mean, I just published it yesterday, so I don't know. I don't know how it's changed that part. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like the novel definitely changed me, like, in a big way. I feel like it broke me and put me back together-ish, you know? Um, I feel like it requires just such an enormous amount of faith. And I um, was just doubting myself constantly for many years. And it was really difficult. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like after, after that, um, I don't feel like quite the same person that I was when I started it, yeah. I mean, it was also really wonderful and I don't, you know, now that um, I finished it and I've been like working on a few short stories, but I feel like the novel is really like what I love, you know, um, and I can't wait to work on another one. But like when it's not going well, it's really terrible. But I did notice, I feel like when things are really not going well, that's usually right before things, there's some sort of breakthrough. Like I feel like when it's really, really, really terrible, there's usually something about to happen. And that's like the resistance. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm just like saying that because it <laughs> helps me to, to believe that. But I do think it actually is true. Yeah. How long did you work on it? Um, so I started it in 2012. 2012. So, yeah. so that's six years to publication. When did you finish it? Um, like finish all the revisions and everything, everything. Um, probably last, uh, like a year ago. Okay. Yeah, so I did work on it for about five years, and I didn't let myself work on anything else creatively so that I wouldn't have any outs. And I don't know if that was a good idea or not. It was really, like, terrible feeling, but I don't know if I would have been able to finish it otherwise. I don't know. And the book has such a beautiful authority to it, you know, that okay. no one would ever guess that you had fears or equivocations, you know, it's... There's a lot of, yeah, fears and equivocations, <laughs> both, yeah. yeah. Or just, like, despair. I don't even know despair. about that stuff. <laughs> but it's just, yeah. 
Um, so it's uh, very early to really talk about, but it's I've been doing research. It has to do with Russia and revolution time. I yeah, <laughs> I feel like I can't really, like it, with this, it started off sort of being historical fiction, and then I was like, I can't do this. So then that sort of becomes the backstory, so I wouldn't be surprised if like revolutionary Russia just became like somebody's grandmother's overheard conversation, <laughs> like the rest of the book, yeah. Well, when I wrote my third novel, Blame, a lot of it took place in, well, not a lot of it, but some of it took place in a women's prison. And while I was writing... You know, I, I didn't realize how imprisoned I was until I got her out of prison. <laughs> Did you have a similar feeling writing about a deeply mentally ill person and dealing, you know, with this sort of um, uh, struggling family? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it required that I go into really dark places in myself to feel the things that they're feeling, and it was very unpleasant. I mean, I was just like, oh, I don't want to, you know, do this ever again <laughs> with, with, I don't know, but I don't know what else I could really write about. I mean, yeah, I think it required um, being, spending a lot of time in places I would, you know, would prefer to avoid usually. Are we yeah. good on time? Is this it? Is it time to start the signing? And enjoy the um, goldfish and Swedish fish and thank, wine. Thank you, everybody, yeah. for coming. Thank you. listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.